0: and so glad that you're here with me on another episode of Dr. Me First. It's me, your colleague in medicine and coach in life, Dr. freaking Aaron Wiseman. And I am here today with one of our GME colleagues, Brenda Thompson. Though not a physician, she works very intimately with our residency colleagues and throughout the graduate medical education. So listen to our conversation, then stick around afterwards for my fun kick of encouragement on well-being. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Brenda Thompson. It's so great to have you here with me today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right. Well, tell the people a little bit about yourself and the wonderful work that you're doing in the world. So a little bit
1: about me is that I've been in healthcare now for 10 years, and I feel as though I've seen physicians from the start at medical school all the way into their faculty attending positions. So I've spent the last decade in graduate medical education doing everything, holding various roles from accrediting the medical residencies through the College of Medicine and GME office to being a trainer, to being a coordinator. And what I am currently doing is providing more of an educational role to individuals in healthcare. So physicians, residents, even medical students and administrators. And that focus is more on wellness related. So anything from, you know, preventing burnout to wellness protection and the promotion of wellness. And I can do that, I feel, because my first career was that of school counseling. So I went to school for three degrees in psychology. So I'm using that as my basis. I have an east-west type of approach, and I use a lot of different eastern modalities for wellness, and I like to educate residents on other means besides the typical western approaches to self-care.
0: Yeah, so I bet you are well acquainted with section six with all the ACGMEs. Correct, yes. (laughs) <laughs> did you help write any of it? I, I did
1: not. Um, so my role in accreditation is we would go in and audit our residency programs to make sure that they were adhering to ACGME standards. And if they had any deficiencies, we would work with them to correct them. So I didn't work personally with ACGME, but I would be there for the programs to make sure, like me being an expert in ACGME accreditation, making sure that they can come to me and say, hey, I think we might have a problem, help us fix it.
0: Yeah, because it's so important. So when I went through training, it was about the time when uh, duty hours were changing. And there was starting to be some lip service towards wellness. And now still being a faculty attending in a residency. I know programs are still struggling with this. Is that what you're seeing from your point of view? Or is it just me? So I feel ACGME
1: is also struggling with it as well, not just residency programs, because ACGME is trying to come up with wellness initiatives. And I do think that's great. And you always go to their conferences and they have the same story to tell. They just don't have the answers. So when they, you know, place the wellness curriculum, so to speak, onto residency programs, which they should, it should be per residency program and how they best fit Um, their wellness curriculum to their own residents and and fellows. Everyone is still wondering, you know, what's the best method? Nobody has that answer yet. And I do feel that we're missing the actual root cause of what's causing um, wellness-related burnout. You can't expect a physician to work 80 hours a week, every week, and also take care of studying, take care of their family time, take care of themselves. It's just a recipe for disaster. So we can have all these nice wellness initiatives and lectures and, um, you know, going to these conferences and learning about what to do. But that doesn't necessarily take care of the core. And if you ever talk to residents and fellows like I do, when I go into programs and I do the audits, I'm hearing from them. I'm hearing from them, you know, firsthand saying, these hours that we just can't keep up. These are ridiculous. I'm tired. I'm burnt out. I'm taking pharmaceuticals. Of course, that's going to cause burnt out. It's not the other way around. You don't get burnt out and then, you know, become groggy, tired, withdrawn. So I feel we're all missing the root cause and trying to correct that root cause. We're just correcting the symptoms of burnt out. And I don't think that's fair to the residents. So yeah, I do see a lot of programs missing the mark because nobody seems to have the right answers. This is all a test drive, right? Because ACGME just put out this initiative for wellness.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And girl, you're speaking our language here because like yoga, it don't create a burnout, you know, it's, you're exactly right. The cure is or getting a cure is going exactly to like, where are the problems and where I get so frustrated in GME right now, is there's enough of like me's out in their world who have said like, oh no, like my burnout definitely started in residency. And I tried to power through because that's what a good resident does. And you don't complain and you don't out your program um, and you just put up and shut up type of thing. And I just can't believe that, you know, we still haven't gotten to a point that like, when is it ever acceptable that we do this to people?
1: Right, we don't do in any other industries. We know that the trucking industry they have to have like a monitor of hours on their truck and they can't work over a certain amount of hours. They have to pull off the side of the road. And why do they do that? Because there was so many car accidents. So the industry said, okay, we have to change this. We're going to mandate, you know, standard duty hours for when truck drivers can drive. So why aren't we doing this in healthcare? We already have the statistics. We know the high risk of patient safety when we have an overworked, exhausted, tired doctor working with them.
0: Yeah. And you know, what makes me so frustrated too is like the generations before me, when I was a resident barking about, Oh, these residents are just so soft. They just can't hack it. You know, talking about our duty hours and our limitations in call. And I just wish ACGMA would be like enough, enough. And I I don't know if we need to extend training so that it can be more humane and in more humane doses. Or what? But I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: So I have a theory about that. Whether this this is right or wrong, I don't know. But, you know, before probably the 90s, most physicians were male. And what happens in the traditional household, the men are able just to go to work and focus on work. The wife will take care of all the child-rearing, house care chores, for example. So men really had 100% focus on schooling, training and then going out into the line of work. So it's not like that today.
0: No, I mean, medicine was totally built for men with wives.
1: Exactly. And so now you have almost 50-50 going into medicine right now. These medical students are 50 male, 50 female. They're coming in with babies. It used to be a time, especially in certain residencies like surgery where it was a no-no to get married to have children. Like you don't have children during residencies. Now they're they're being more relaxed about it. So now they have other care that they have to attend to. And, you know, if you have children, then you know how tired that is. So that's my theory. Um, I think because society has changed, these rules need to be looked at and these older physicians need to change with the times.
0: I think, too, that it just wasn't tolerated. Like you were kicked out of programs if you were found out to be pregnant or that to be your desire. I wouldn't say that it was still accepted. Being, Being a woman who had two babies. Well, yeah, I had two babies when I was in residency my first year and my third year. It was dealt with. I think that's the best way to put it. It wasn't accepted. It wasn't like, oh, we're super happy for you. It was just like, oh, you're making this a lot harder than everybody else, but we can't say it out loud because then we'll get hit with you know, human relations complaint.
1: And that's the same that I'm dealing with now. I mean, it's 2020. I still have those conversations with program directors and DIOs. And it is, it's, it's probably a really hard thing for a woman to come forward and say, I'm pregnant to the program director, but it is still considered a no-no. But yes, because there are more restrictions in terms of healthcare laws um human resources laws they can't necessarily outright say it in fear of a lawsuit but they will be treated as such that resident will know they just did a a bad thing and it's unfair it's unfortunate but i also have to say to that resident or fellow you have to also understand if that's what's going to happen and sometimes nature just takes its course okay (laughs) sometimes you know no matter what you have in terms of conception it just doesn't work there is going to be a stigma against you for a little bit. And it's not just with the program directors or the DIO. It's also with your peers. I've had that conversation with other residents who are like, oh, great, now that shoulder responsibility is going to become on me. And they get angry.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think this is where we have to have a culture change and say um, we're working with a bunch of 20, 30, and maybe 40-year-old people who are fertile. And so why do we not have a mechanism for understanding that life happens during all of this. We have to get over the thought process that we just like put our life on pause for about eight years and then we just pick it back up again. Because like as you were talking about, like there's so much trauma that becomes installed, so so much pain, so much experiences that you're just not a robot and that like someday you just get to wipe your hard drive and start over again. Like that leaves lifelong impacting experiences.
1: It really does. And, you know, I go back to the term depersonalization all the time. So when I talk to faculty or talk to residents, and I'm doing a wellness lecture, I talk about depersonalization. So if I tell you that you're a doctor, you've been a resident, what does
0: that mean for you? I have no identity.
1: Yeah. So basically, and this is kind of what you were just talking about a little bit ago about how when you're a resident, you, know, you just kind of show up, you shut up, <laughs> you do what you're told. And that's what depersonalization kind of is, the symptoms of it, because it is a psychological withdrawal. It's a withdrawal from relationships. Um, you develop, you know, a negative, more cynical, callous attitude, not just to yourself or to others, but to the institution. So if this problem is starting truly in medical school, because you can see the statistics in medical school about burnout as well as suicide rates. These medical students are going for rotations They're experiencing firsthand, maybe some forms of abuse. Then they go into residency. This is what they're experiencing. And when they go out into the field and maybe they become attendings, it's a recycled pattern. They're going to now do this to the observership clerk, student meds, then to the residents and maybe even to one another. So, you can only take some form of abuse, whether it's emotional abuse, whether it's actual physical abuse, whether it's spiritual abuse, for so long before you start to experience depersonalization, you're going to withdraw. And that's a serious problem. You know, you're know, you going to feel like you don't have control over your own speech. Just like you said, you kind of have to show up and shut up. You do what you're told. You don't necessarily have input. And that's very unlike other jobs. Like, you know, I've been in education, like I said, school counseling. I've been in other fields. And I always had the value of speaking my truth or my opinions or my ideas. But you don't get that as a resident. It's a very controlling system that they have. The hospital, in general, is an over hierarchical nature. And residents are really at the totem pole of that.
0: Well, I mean, what other jobs in the U.S. do you put your name into a computer system that then matches you up to your next job, and that's that's your choices. I mean, we started off crazy with the match.
1: To me, that's really scary, and I don't know who or what entity decided that that's the way to go because if you really want to be an OBGYN doctor, but unfortunately you match with psychiatry, I'm going to be really scared as a psychiatry patient to go to you when I know that your heart's not into that field. I mean, you're now literally taking care of my health, when you don't probably want to be there. But you just spent 300000 in medical school. You've got all these bills. Of course, you're going to see yourself through that residency program and become a psych doctor. So I'm not in agreement with Match at all on how you know we have to do this ranking system. And that is another conversation. I mean, you can manipulate the ranking system. Both parties can. The candidate can and the residency program can. I've seen it done 100 times.
0: I know I have this conversation with a statistician And I was challenging, like he was saying, well, the match is fair. And I was like, oh, bullshit. The match is not fair. And I think it's just another one of those like cultural things. That's like, well, this is how we do it. And we don't want to hear any other ways. This is how we do it. I luckily was a DO and it was at a time when I didn't have to go through the match. I could just sign outside of the match to an allopathic residency. Yeah. So much less stress. And that's how allopathic
1: was. I mean, Really, the the matching system in terms of ranking is relatively new. It's only been a couple, I think, like a decade, no, not maybe two decades old. It is relatively new. I mean, that's not how the old system was. You would send out your application to all these allopathic programs, and then the program director would sort through them and then interview. Just like any human resource, you get applications, and then you look through them and see who's the best fit to bring in for an interview. But now it's changed. So why can't it go back to the old way?
0: Right. And I think, you know, Hopefully, GME is waking up to gender disparities, racial inequalities, even sexual orientation. Uh, We had an issue in a program that I was involved with, with one of our residents who came out of the closet and, you know, said, like, it's not a big deal. The rest of us, it wasn't a big deal, but it was made to be a big deal. And... Yeah. Just, just to the point that it was just extremely inappropriate. And I'm just, again, I look around because now, you know, most of my time is spent outside of healthcare doing coaching and consulting. I'm not in the trenches anymore. And when I jump down in the trenches, I'm like, Oh my God, it's so toxic here. (laughs) I can just feel it. But why are healthcare organizations
1: really supporting them? So I don't know if you heard of Dr. Death down in Texas. Oh my God, that podcast,
0: it makes me want to vomit. Have you heard, did you listen to the story of the podcast? Yeah, I did. And
1: I don't remember the gentleman's name, but there were many doctors and other people who went to healthcare administration and made a complaint and said, this guy should not be working, but they protected him. They allowed it. I mean, they allowed a person who is performing serious harm to patients, serious harm to the community. And that, again, will create depersonalization. Physicians start to lose trust in their employer. They start to lose trust And credibility within their leadership. So they pull back. They become numb. They have a psychological withdrawal. And that's a serious problem. And what happens? You will start to suffer health-wise because your mentality, your spirituality, and your emotions are now taking a hit. So we have to go back to what are you doing as a physician or healthcare administrator when you see injustice? whether that is through healthcare administration, whether that is with you know doctors who shouldn't be on the floor who are performing, get allowed to, your voice is going unheard. I mean, that is literally telling those doctors and individuals who went forward and to complain about him, saying, hey, your opinion, you are not valued. Your opinion is not valued. I heard you, you made a formal complaint, but we're still gonna keep him on the floor. So what are you gonna do as a physician when you say, I just worked side by side with him and I can tell you everything he did wrong to create a serious health risk for this patient, and they're saying thank you, but that doctor's still staying on. Of course, you're going to lose trust. You're going to get angry. You're going to start to question: Am I in the right field? Am I doing you know right? Because I'm literally moving forward and knowing that the community is at harm. You're going to develop you know symptoms like I said of depersonalization, and that that's a problem because the ultimate problem is when it gets so bad that a physician wants to take their own life. And you know we look at healthcare in general and it's got the highest statistic of occupancy for self-harm, for suicide, in particular surgeons. I worked in surgery. So when I worked in GME, I had just always gravitated towards surgery for some reason. I've worked with a lot of surgeons. I've been in a program administrator for residency for surgery. And it's where I find the suicides to happen the most in my experience, but also statistically that proves it. And this is what gets me scared. When we start to see that depersonalization take effect, when they start to have that psychological withdrawal, when they're no more fighting, there's no more fight to fight, they're not getting emotional over experiences. They basically take that beat down, whether it's an emotional beat down, spiritual beat down, whatever kind of beat down that it is, and they withdraw. As a counselor, that gets me scared because you need to pull them out of that because you never want anybody, a doctor or anybody to make peace with the fact that they're going to end their life. If they lost the fight, they're not getting angry anymore. You don't see them having any ties emotionally to anything that might've happened that was negative situation or harmful situation. That's when you got to get scared. And that's when you have to try to pull them out of whatever mindset that they're in. So when we talk about healthcare and we talk about you know the disparities, we really have to look at not just accrediting agencies like ACGMe, are they protecting the residents? You know what happens when there is a physician, program director attending whomever that is abusing the resident or fellow? What happens to them? What's the protection to the resident? We also have to look at healthcare administration. So like I was mentioning Dr. Death, that didn't happen in that Texas facility. They protected that doctor that was causing harm, but they didn't protect the doctors that were coming forward. That's a problem. And if you work with that your entire career, how are you as a physician going to mentally, spiritually, emotionally be stable? I don't see how you can.
0: Mm, Yeah, so true. And I know some of your work is around coming back from this and releasing some of those harms that's been done. Tell me more about it. When I
1: went to school for my master's, I studied transpersonal studies psychology because I wanted to look at different philosophies, religions, cultures, and see what they were doing to kind of have self-care, heal themselves, move forward, and work through emotions. And I gravitated towards a practice called creative expressions. That's just one modality. And the other modality is more of a body therapy called somatic therapy. So first we'll talk about creative arts. So I like creative arts because it's a behavioral, cognitive, physical, social and spiritual form of treatment, so to speak. And we've all heard of art therapy, I'm sure. And I'm sure we've all heard of dance therapy. That's what creative art therapy is. So it's not just a verbal expression like t- typical therapy like Freud therapy. It's also a, the creative process. And this is something I really truly enjoy and I see the enjoyment that I've worked with, with residents and, and other faculty, that they get to be firsthand accountable for their own healing. And it's more enjoyable. A lot of people don't like to talk about the problem. So sometimes they need a different form. This is what creative expression arts will do for you. So if you're great at movement and you want to express yourself through dance therapy, there is a dance therapy therapist for you. But m- maybe it's more words, journaling, storytelling poetry. Maybe that's how you can best put everything that you've been through, the pain, the suffering, the things that you've witnessed out on paper and get it out, move that energy through your body that way. Energy is in motion, right? And you need to know how are you working through that energy? You can't have that energy harboring within your body. You've got to move that energy out. Creative expressions is a way to do that. I love it. So I always encourage anyone from residency programs that they're looking for a wellness day activity or a physician to look up creative arts, find something that you're interested in and bring in a a facilitator in one of those practice areas. So you can do art therapy, you know, clay therapy, there's sand therapy, there's drama therapy, storytelling, journaling, collaging, there's, you know, prayer, meditation, you know, more ritual type of therapies. So it's, for me, it's really good to get the so-called client to be actively involved, and sometimes, like I was saying, words are hard to say. Sometimes there's embarrassment. Sometimes there's shame, and I noticed working with physicians, they have a lot of shame in what they have experienced, some guilt, and so I say, okay, you know what? Maybe traditional talk therapy won't be the best for you. Let's go into something creative, and then I find out what it is that they're interested in, what they like. Do they like to draw? Do they like to move? Do they like music? There's music therapy. There's many different types of therapies that are more creative, where they don't necessarily have to talk, it will all come out through one form of movement. And that trained therapist, that facilitator, will understand symbolization. So I have had my clients draw a tree, which sounds crazy, right? If you're going to a therapist and they're like, draw me a tree, you're going to think, what is the relevance of drawing a tree? But what you draw symbolizes something and as a trained facilitator, I know what those symbolizations would mean. So if you draw a bird in a specific place, if you draw a cloud or a sun in a specific place, it's symbolic and I'll be able to distinguish the meaning of what your you know subconscious is trying to say. and then from there, we have a talk.
0: I love that. I, I knew nothing about this so I like I'm gonna go away from this conversation, draw a tree and then scan it and send it to you. <laughs> Just as an experiment. Definitely. definitely. I mean, it's, it's actually kind of fun. You get to learn
1: a little bit about yourself as well. But, you know, sometimes people also, maybe they they don't want to go to therapy. And I think that's a stigma that physicians
0: still face. Oh, 100%.
1: And I understand that. And I and I really do. I'm, I worked in healthcare for a long time, and I understand the stigma. And especially they don't want other people, the other physicians, and they don't want their patients to find out because they believe that it it feels like you know they're not strong enough, and and that's just not accurate. But that's okay. You know, I, I'm not not here to push anyone to do something that they don't want to do. But there's also another modality, and I call this one probably more of a feel good experience. It is a therapeutic experience, but it's a somatic therapy. So it's biology meets biology, and it's a great one because if you've ever heard of you know the Rosen method or Rubinfield Synergy method trigger point therapy, your body is being worked on. Your like I was explaining before, energy is, you know, emotions and it's in your body. So that anger, sadness, even happiness, or the pain or the guilt that you're experiencing, maybe on a daily or every other day or a weekly basis, you know, especially whatever specialty you're in, you know, people in ER are going to experience a little more negative experiences than you know a family physician would be. So they might hold that energy within their body and they have to release it. So if they're not comfortable releasing it in, you know, traditional Freud talk therapy or the creative modalities that I just explained, then they should maybe try somatic therapies. It almost acts as a massage because you, you will have a lot of, you know, pressure points being triggered within the body, but it's also helping to relieve built up emotion, not just so-called blood clots or knots in the body. And I highly recommend physicians try that if they're not comfortable yet with talk therapy. And it can move some of that emotion through your body and out of your body. Field symmetry method, you would be surprised at how a facilitator can touch a part of your body and it can bring back the experience of the pain and they will work through the release of that built up. So yes, you are moving blood clots, you're moving knots, but you're also moving that emotion out. A lot of patients will cry or, you know, they might scream, not in pain, but there's just emotion that's being released as they release those emotions to the
0: body. Oh, girl, you're talking to a do. I'm all over this stuff. I <laughs> 100% believe that physical manifestations are definitely, they can be felt in our bodies, but they mean so much more and so much deeper, you know, even down into our subconscious. Well, I love it. Well, thank you so much for educating us on these different types of therapies, the you know the validation that it's not like only talk therapy and, and that doesn't work if people are interested in learning more about this or about the work that you're doing what's the best place for them to find you so they can definitely find me on my
1: linkedin or they can email me at gmepundent at
0: gmail.com love it and we'll have all of that in the show notes for you guys out there Well, Brenda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for just having a very candid conversation with me about GME and, you know, getting all over my trigger points a little bit too, encouraging and inspiring me to go away and draw a tree and see what that means in my life. And I just want to applaud you for the work that you're doing.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: When I talk to residents or fellows or faculty member in residency training or medical education, many times when I come in and I say I'm talking about wellness or well-being, they automatically jump to when their next retreat is. Well, I just want to put it out there, guys. Wellness and well-being is not bar crawls. It's not wellness retreats. It's not yoga at lunch. Those are events that can take place to augment your wellness and well-being. But that's not only it. I think real wellness is being able to get up in the morning and say, "Hell yes. Bring on this day. I'm so excited to be alive and I'm so excited to be doing the work that I'm doing." I think real wellness is going about your day and even when you're confronted with a difficult situation, scheduler's gone crazy, patients are all crazy, nurse is crazy, my kids are crazy. They're Toilets over flooding and it's crazy. True wellness is being able to sit in the moment and not lose my freaking mind to be like, of course, of course this happens in life. Because guess what? This is hashtag real life. The other thing that I think real wellness is, is being able to sit with yourself through the good, the bad, the ugly, the bitch, the wonderful, the horrible, it all and still be able to say, yes, this is my life. So if you look at that and you use my gauge of what wellness is, and you're like, yep, I'm not there, it's okay, the first step is always going from unawareness to awareness. And then the next step is getting really clear on your definitions. And maybe your definition of wellness may be totally different than me. Maybe it's a particular type of schedule or lifestyle or way that you move your body or how you consume your food and what you consume. That's fine. Cause that's the really cool thing. We all get our definition, but you just need to be making sure that you're living by your definition. So guys, as always, I wanna be here to help you and support you. I hope this kick of encouragement reminds you what true wellness is for you. And as always, remember, your life, your calling, your pulse matters.